Hi, this is Isaac Arthur. Welcome to the show and don't forget to check out this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters. To get access and help support the show while hearing every episode early and ad free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash Isaac Arthur and use my code Isaac Arthur. Good afternoon everyone and welcome to our live stream Q&A here on SFIA and as usual, we joined today by my co-host and lovely wife, Sarah Faldorfer, who will be reading your questions off as you get them into the chat, where our mods will find them and put them in. If you want to increase the odds that your chat's going to get answered, try to put it into a, a reasonably concise and grammatically correct version when you put it up there in the chat window. So with no further ado, let's go ahead and get started. Well, we've got some great questions today, and we just finished our snack because, of course, we have to eat beforehand, yeah. so uh, <laughs> we have Sinji and Maya Skill helping us, and the first question is from the Wise Ninja, and he wants to know, what is today's topic? Today's topic? I mean, I guess today's topic, you know, I got one up on the screen that was just popular. <laughs> uh, today's topic is the live stream. Uh, this is a <laughs> coming week's topic. Uh, let's see, we just had the episode, what was this week's episode? You know, I write them months in advance, and I turn them into videos weeks early, and then just minor edits. So it's sometimes hard to remember, but probably appropriately, uh, it's going to be staying safe in space. Is going to be episodes coming up on Thursday. That's I thought the one. for a minute we stumped you with the first question. <laughs> you, remember, you remember Logan from the ISDC conference? That's what yes. he helped write. So very nice guy there. So that's this upcoming week's episode, and of course, we just had the episode of the Force Space Element, which is up on the screen right now, coincidentally. All right, so we'll go ahead and go with the next question. From Cannon Fodder 43 thank you for your super chat. The European Space Agency announced plans to develop orbital solar, pan, uh, orbital solar power satellites. What can be done to win the support of skeptics and critics? Um, you know, I started off as one of those skeptics, so it's, it's uh, when I was a kid, I, well, when it comes to almost anything scientific, one of the first places I go is how do I make a weapon out of this thing? And what's neat about space-based solar power is it's so easy to turn into a death ray. Uh, and so I never really liked the idea of space-based solar power. But then, maybe a few months before we actually did the episode on, on power-based satellites in 2018, I think it was, um, you know, I had a friend who was, who was helping to do some of the images and graphics for that, Chris Holland, who kind of explained why that was actually really, really safe, and looked into it more uh, with another friend, and it was like, wow, this is actually very easy to set up so it is not automatically a death ray, nor you have some insulation you could easily turn it into it that way. In almost every discussion of it, that's, that's the two things you got going on there, well, three. There are three challenges you have with space-based solar and when you really want to work with it. One, nobody trusts solar power right now. We, we're moving on that a little bit, but solar power has a, a bad reputation for being that thing that the like fusion is always on the horizon, only we had it and it's not profitable yet. And we're kind of getting to that point where it is good now, but there's still a lot of a lot of time lag on people just not trusting it, kind of like you have with electric vehicles. The second is space. Nobody ever really trusts things we put up in space. It's hard to repair them, it's incredibly expensive. And then of course the third one is, how do I not make a weapon out of this? Those are the three things you're trying to talk with folks on this about. And you don't have to trick them, you just tell them you know, what the facts are and things like this, and usually they'll be a lot more confident. They just need more information, and that's the one to, to use it with. And the other is say, if we really want to get into space, what we need is some sector of the economy that's just going to make us tons of money, that can have all the knock-on effects of things around it being built up, taking advantage of that. And the space economy could do well to have a multi-trillion dollar industry suddenly arrive there, and one of those is, industry is power. The power sector is that big, so that's the thing to keep in mind for that. I think it's a great observation, though, that a lot of times the challenge isn't whether or not you can do something as much as it is whether or not uh, there's critics or skeptics or people who are not going to support it actually happening. Yeah, I think that is always the problem is, is you, you get people who also have their, their preferred one they're really all focused on, and, and uh, you know, my own attitude towards energy, which is very, you know, very surface level is you cannot have too many areas you're researching and improving on. You, know, you don't want to just waste money. You got to have standards and benchmarks and responsibility. But the more types of energy you're looking into, the better. So the next question is from Dara Cloak. Thank you for your super chat. Hi, Isaac. How likely do you think it is that humans are the only intelligent civilization in the Milky Way? Oh, I'd say probably about. Well, let's see. Um, I call it 50-50, because the reasoning is all the logic and evidence we have for the show says probably not. 
but it's kind of working on the assumption that all basic scientific concepts are that solidly correct right now, right? If you're trying to figure out what the status of the galaxy was in the 1850s, you have a little bit of evidence indicating that the planet might be very old and that stars might be kind of old and it doesn't actually work out very well when you run the numbers on that. Without fusion, without cosmic expansion specifically, uh, you have a view of the universe that's got paradoxes in it, like Orpus paradox, same as the Fermi paradox. It doesn't seem to fit the available data. Right now, I would say that the Fermi paradox has about a 50-50 chance of being in that zone too, where we're just missing something so critically vital, right? That throws everything out the window. Kind of like those logic puzzles that I was getting <laughs> right all, except for the one clue that well, right, solved miss, the whole uh, puzzle. <laughs> you missed one of them, and this is why we, we audit our, our, our logic puzzles, to make sure that they're all correct. Mm. <laughs> Don't clap at me. <laughs> Mm. I like my logic puzzle, but I have had two puzzles in the last 24 hours that I got one clue and I got stuck, got stuck with only yeah, half of it. It, it. It's hard to go back and, and actually that's the, I will I will hijack your point there. It's hard to go back sometimes when we're looking at a lot of the scientific concepts and say, I know there's an error in here. What of my core assumptions do I need to, to replace? And sometimes you have to go all the way back to start and go back through again. And that, that's horrible. It's, it's horrible to do that, but it's so necessary for some of these concepts. So where the Fermi Paradox is concerned, I'd say if our current data is right, if, if the current view of the universe is right, then the odds of there being another intelligence in this galaxy are basically zero, right? Uh, with the exceptions of things where they're kind of pan-galactic, e.g. the program was God, etc., things that are in this galaxy because they're everywhere, right? Uh, alternatively, if our fundamental concept of the universe is wrong, and I'd say that's probably about a 50-50 chance right now. So, there you go. 50-50. Point for bots. Christian Corello, thank you for your super chat. What are some of your favorite spaceships in sci-fi? Why? And can you imagine humanity trying to build a working version of any of them in real life? Um, you know, one of the episodes, I think it might be... No, it's not up there because I just got to read the afterword earlier today. Um, one of the episodes we've coming up is called uh, Can You Own Your Own Personal Spaceship? Um, and that was a fun one to write because it's, you know, the thing we all want is to have our own spaceship. And for some people that's like the Millennium Falcon or it's the Serenity from Firefly. Um, others it's I want to be the captain of the Enterprise type of thing. Um, my personal favorite would probably be, you know, a rogue trader from 40K because you have a ship that's like miles long and has a crew of thousands of minions. And you get to go all sorts of other places. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, I I love the the gigantic trading ships you see in some of the some of the things that have uh, you know kind of more of a I'd say more of an age of sail feel sometimes the way the the stories go. But if I had to pick a personal spaceship I wanted to own, that would probably be it. But yeah, there are so many cool ones out there. <laughs> not the Nostromo from Alien though. Not not that ship. I think I'd settle for an airplane. <laughs> That's a good starting point. <laughs> Reverend RV, Mars being smaller has the largest mountain. A super Earth should have smaller mountains. Both scenarios should be profoundly poor hydrological systems. Is Earth's hydrological system a great filter? Quite probably. I mean, that's one of those ones that could possibly get its own episode at some point in time. But I've already thought of phrasing it that way, but it's a good one. Um, you know, we, we tend to think, you know, oh, I'm going to make a super Earth. Everything's bigger there. And so you don't have bigger continents on a planet like that. You could, but it wouldn't be very neat, and the insides would almost always be deserts, right? <laughs> um, it's, it's hard to actually keep a good system interchange of moisture, for instance, and stuff like that. Uh, on a super Earth, you probably have more erosion, more gravity pulling stuff down. On a smaller planet, you can get gigantic volcanoes because it's being jettisoned out much faster. And when there's no air, there's no erosion. When there's no water, there's much less erosion. Uh, when your planet spins faster, there's more weather and more erosion. So, at, where we're thinking about it, we say, well, a super Earth, we'd think they would have bigger continents and bigger mountains, and but no, probably not. Whereas, places like Mars, they could be, you could have a planet that looked like a nothing like a mountain, but we have asteroids that we think of them as a sphere, but they got a big, like, here's a sphere, and the mountains to get over like that. That's common with asteroids. <laughs> Cosmic arc. Do you ever think that the solar system will be colonized so that, or so colonized that moving between planets, moons, and orbital habitats will be as casual as moving to another country on yeah. Earth? Yeah, absolutely. I would actually say it'd be easier. Now, that doesn't mean it'd be easier to get from, say, Pluto to Mercury. Um, but in a fully colonized system, uh, even though the density, you know, we'd say with Dyson swarms, people are afraid. 
wouldn't everything be so close together would crash? I said, well, actually, the population density of a fully populated Dyson swarm, even though it's a billion times what we have now, is still lower. Right? It's, it's very low. We have a few thousand people in a value the size of this planet. However, there's no, there's no AO drag. You could have straight tethers between things, too, that things could just pull on. And things can go around a moving kilometers per second between those, but for ridiculously tiny amounts of energy, less than you take to drive down the road to the convenience store. And so in that context, um, it would be a lot easier to move around. Plus, and this is the big one, the places themselves can move around. You know, you can move your space habitat if you don't like your neighbors. Sounds like your mic might be a little hot. Is my mic hot? That's what it says. Okay. So uh, while you're fixing that, I have a, a long question here from Albert Jackinson. Good afternoon, Isaac and Sarah. Starting college three weeks ago got me thinking with coming advances in digital communication, VR, etc. Would future schools and physical buildings still make sense? Also, what are your thoughts on the upcoming launch of Artemis tomorrow? P.S. It is great to be back here. Missing two live streams in a row is simply too much. Welcome back, Albert. I don't know if that fixed the mic or not. I can kind of see it down on the screen here, but this is one of the problems when you have shows that are live streams is, is almost everybody who live streams regularly. You know, think if you have your favorite YouTuber that live streams daily, there is always somebody running the audio. I do not know how we could have had microphones longer than cameras as the microphones that are always the hard part. But there's so <laughs> many little things like you, know, you glance around, I can see like the light reflecting off my uh, you know, ceiling light off of my glasses, for instance. There's too many things to try to keep in mind while you're also trying to keep people's questions in mind, which is why I have no idea what Albert asked. Could well, you the important part is that he's back to school yeah. and that he is back with us, so. <laughs> I'm sure he had a question. Let me just go past that. He did. What was uh, the question? His question was, first, um, with whether or not a physical school building was still going to be necessary in virtual reality and digital communications age. Yeah, I think I think the answer would be that, much like radio or TV, and, and using those examples again, um, you will have these things still around a lot. But no, I mean, I think, and I would say probably the one you see the most start going away soon will probably be a lot of the universities. They're not going to disappear. Or they're never going to go away completely. Cambridge will still be around in the late of the years, I'm sure. But uh, you know, you just have so many facilities that are going to start switching to satellite formats because while it has become something of a rite of passage like buying a car to go out to college for a lot of people that is a huge expense a huge amount of time and and often to, to be out away from your home in a very strange alien place so much easier to be able to do that in your local community by just doing most stuff online or virtually in your own preferred virtual reality or university and I think that is absolutely where we'll see these things going. He also wanted to know your thoughts on the upcoming Artemis launch tomorrow. Fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah. I, I have a personal rule that I never discuss launches if I can, before they happen. You know, I don't want to jinx them. <laughs> Potential it's launches. Very scientific, yeah, I know. <laughs> Withering Liberal says, how much turbulence would one expect to feel during a gravity assist or gravity breaking? Um, do you say turbulence? Yes. I, I was thinking about that kind of like maybe it's how you're getting turbulence yeah. in an airplane. They want to know if you'd be feeling that when no, you're braking uh, yeah. or okay. That's, yeah. well, using it, gravity vacuum, assist or gravity. You wouldn't be feeling any in the vacuum. Um, you know, as an example, gravity for the most part, very evenly distributed too. Most of the things that like shake us around, uh, in cars, things like that, it's because the force is not evenly distributed or reacting. Um, we have an amount of energy interchange between the Earth and the Sun, and the Sun and the Moon, or the Earth and the Sun, that dwarfs anything like the amount of energy that goes off between the planets over their whole lifetime for sunlight. But we don't barely feel that because gravity is such an even force. There's so little friction involved in it, just a little bit for tidal heating. Uh, so generally speaking, with gravitational maneuvers, you know, you're not going to feel virtually anything. All right, we have a uh, super chat here from Miami's last capitalist. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. What might be the timeline of the transhuman, of transhumanism versus space colonization? Such as, will we have cyberpunks on Mars, direct to brain virtual reality while traveling in space, digital immorality, immortality? Digital immorality. Digital immorality. I'm sure that one. So. <laughs> By the way, uh, did, did Sidri say at the microspace mail yet? <clears throat> yes. Okay, we're done, we're done hot micing, good. Okay. I normally wear a lapel mic too, there's a boom mic right up here, but uh, it was hot micing, so I just yanked it off today, it's sitting in the corner over there. Um, so, 
I've got to stop going off tangents. I forget the question is. Hi, Moav. You I forgot what the question again. was again? <laughs> uh, it was about whether or not we'd have digital immortality on Mars. <clears throat> there was more yes. to that question, I'm sure of that. Well, that's a good starting point. <laughs> it wasn't um, Merv. It was Miami's last capitalist. Oh, his name's Moav, though. That's, oh, yeah, that's, okay. <laughs> Hi, Merv. <laughs> uh, you get to recognize folks after a lot of period of time. Uh, <laughs> he says, what might be the timeline of transhumanism versus space colonization? Um, I think that you see transhumanism kind of rolling completely separate to, to I mean, they, we tend to think of them as together in some way. We tend to think, well, you surely have more transhuman folks off on these colonies where they could you know, do all this cybernetic augmentation. Um, and I think there would be some correlation here just because you tend to have folks who be a little bit more tech-oriented. But for instance, it's more likely in my eyes that uh, an Amish community might decide to go buy an O'Neill sonar in the future to get away from Earth than you know, necessarily stay here on Earth and try to deal with everybody who's already here. So I think you'd have a lot of folks who might decide to leave because they did not like technology as much as because there was a great place to try new technology. So he was also saying, uh, such as, will we have cyberpunks on Mars, direct-to-brain virtual reality while traveling in space, or digital immortality by Jupiter? By Jupiter. Okay. Mm, no. Um, cyberpunk genre as a whole, I hope, never really does happen because as cool as it is, I mean, I love, I love me Blade Runner, Shadowrun, and... Um, William Gibson's Normance, or, you know, or my personal favorite, um, Snow Crash by uh, Neil Stevenson, best of the cyberpunk books in my opinion, but um, I don't really want to live in that future, and I hope it isn't the one that actually materializes, it's very dystopian. Um, I think that we would see brain augmentation, like actual brain chips, before we have people living on Mars, unless we're really stretching it to be like those six people we send on Air Force boat who, who would up living there probably like make more so. D. Cragen wants to know, in a world with no aging, would language changes slow down? Otherwise, people and their still alive, great, great, whatever grandparents might not understand each other. And that's a really good question, too, because I, I actually have no idea. You can argue it both ways. Um, the same question comes up, would a society that is uh, more long-lived tend to be slower to change overall with many things? Right? You know, is it a more concerned society about you know, uh, cultural changes, new music? Do these things slow down? Right? And my actual guess is not really, right? Um, people get set in their ways and enjoy their life, kinda. If you talk to anybody who's 50, 60 years old, they will often be irritated by changes around them, but they're still actually engaged in or actively involved in or even very participatory with other new changes going on. So on the one hand, yes, you get a bit of a breaking force because people aren't necessarily gonna be making up new wars often that change into being, you know, this, this this generation's slang is next generation's Webster's Dictionary. Um, but at the same time, I think you would still have a lot of change just because people who have been around a long time are in, you know, going to still be interested in innovation. So maybe you covered this in your mental health episode coming up uh, this week, but Scooter wants to know, as virtual reality technology advances, do you think that a hollow addiction, as depicted in various Star Trek series, will become a legitimate diagnosed condition. Um, with a caveat that I'm not really sure, because because that is not my field, I'm not sure if they'd actually give something like that. If it did happen, which I'm sure it will happen, if that would end up as a sort of like DSM five, you know, or six or twenty, if that would end up as its own entry or something that was subclassified under an existing thing. Um, with that caveat, oh yeah, absolutely, you know. Um, We've had people get addicted to video games for about 50 years probably now, but it's only at least 40. Or virtual was, reality now. It's getting there now, yeah. But uh, VR turned out to be a lot less addictive because it's been rolling in for like three decades. We all expect it to be the thing, but it's been so slow to start in so many ways. But many of us who are my age, we have the Nintendo thumb still, where you can like push those two little buttons really fast. I won't buy a console system anymore. I haven't bought since Xbox 360 came out because I don't want to lose all my free time to another video game series, you know. Uh, there were the couple of video games I do play, all things like the early 2010s, that I'll play for like 15 minutes, because that's how long it takes to get bored of them again. Otherwise, I'd have no free time to write episodes or do live. Um, that's, by the way, feel free to do video games as a perfectly legitimate hobby, just obviously, like anything else in life, keep it a little bit restrained if you want to have any free time for other things in life. Um, <laughs> like life. <laughs> but... <laughs> but <laughs> um, will these things form as addictions? Yeah, absolutely. Would a holodeck be addictive? Oh, good God, yeah. I mean, you know, it's like reality at that point in time becomes the thing you don't really feel like spending much time in. Why would you not be in a holodeck when you could still have everything cool around you, your own 
tailored virtual space or, or office, uh, and then still do your normal job. You know, you're in the factory, and the factory conveyor belt's going through uh, your holodeck environment, which might be a beach somewhere with more interesting people than your fellow factory workers. And why not? The coordination on that thing would allow that. Of course, the point is that is that it's not going to, uh, you know, it's not going to really be necessary to do a factory in a kind of environment that has that level of technology. But there you go. Um, Star Trek looks at it a lot in some very interesting ways, more in Voyager. You know, you got the original Veg Barkley episodes on that; they're all fascinating. But Voyager looks at it more with a Doctor, I think. And then there was a, it was a series written by William Shatner, or maybe Ghost written by him, uh, in after the Star Trek Generations movie had come out. Where he is like resurrected and fights the Borg, which it's it's a bit of a mixed quality level, but they actually have a lot of the things they discuss in there about uh, weird things you'd expect to see with uh, virtual reality holodecks, like the entire bridge being a holodeck, just because you can change the interfaces so much more easily. And I think that's that's an interesting one. The idea that everyone in Star Trek would have their office space as a holodeck. So. Welcome back, Isaac Bordeaux. What do you think of Max Tegmark's mathematical universe hypothesis? Um, I, to avoid going off of my personal rants about string theory, <laughs> um, I like the model as a basic concept. I like the whole idea of multi-level, you know, universe concepts for classification. But it seems like I like string theory as a basic concept. I tend to feel that we are not going to find the answers to our physical reality via math. I feel like math is how we check available data for these things. And I, I worry sometimes that math-based conclusions about the physical universe, where there's no actual data or evidence, because we're doing it because we don't have that data, can often lead us onto some bad paths that are hard to conform. And so, you know, we don't have that data. If we did, we wouldn't do it that way. I'm not knocking the folks who are doing that, but I tend to worry about getting a little bit too worked out to the point that we become confident that exists. And so you might have some system that looks like the old retrograde orbits of the planets where they did little circles that's uh, you know, been canonized by the math and numbers without any data. Um, and that tends to be my way about things like string theory or multiverse a lot. Um, that said, they're beautiful models. I, I like them. They might very well be true. But uh, there's not a lot of data to back up that approach, in my opinion. Alexander Potachev, thank you for your super chat. What is the best way to learn general and special relativity? I think I need to find like a new antihistamine. I'm allergies today. But, um, the special pop. relativity is the easy one to learn, right? Um, general relativity, I mean, you make a decision going in, and, and it actually is. It's This is one of those examples I poke people at a little bit because a lot of times the explanations people give for special relativity fall into two camps. The incorrect one someone gives who doesn't actually know what they're talking about and is just kind of like, or doesn't know it very well, and just try to push on it so it never makes sense to people. And then there's the one that is um, overly technical uh, and just not well suited for it, so that the person's just not getting a very good explanation. Um, when it comes to special relativity, the key thing to understand learning it, uh, you know, it's not that hard of a concept, but it gets this arcane flavor to it is that everything we know about velocity says that it's a distance divided by a time. How fast you're going is how far you traveled in what period of time. A, you know, D divided by T. The weird thing that we discovered towards the end of last, last century, and actually just about 60 miles down the road here at Case Western, was the speed of light always gets measured the same everywhere. And no matter how we tried to measure it from whatever angle, whatever relative position, much as a, a you know, baseball you're throwing was going faster out of a car than someone was standing next to the car that was not moving, it kept getting measured the same speed. And so we said, how can that be? You cannot possibly have something be the same speed for different observers and different frames of reference. That wouldn't make sense. Frame of reference being, are you standing still or are you on a top of a car that's moving by, etc. And we said, well, if the velocity is staying the same, then the distance or the time has to change. That's the key one. If something is moving at the same speed, even though it cannot possibly be moving at the same speed from a different angle like that, then either the distance or the time has to be altering. And that's where you get that time, time slowing down or distance shrinking. That is special relativity. The rest is just the equation. The equation is a little bit algebra, but not too heavy. Right? That tells you how much it does. But the equation doesn't tell you what it does. It just tells you how much it does it. That's what's happening. The velocity of light is constant, and you have to realize from that it tells us something new about the universe that distance or time themselves can actually shrink 
depending on your perspective, where you're at, how fast you're moving. General Otu takes that one step further and says, mass and, and energy and gravity can make the same effect happen. Not just your speed of motion, but things like acceleration or gravity can do it. That one, the math is way harder for to actually calculate with that problem with general relativity. The concept, very easy. Acceleration, gravity, and mass also slow time or distance too. But the calculations are way harder. Kyle Musgrave says, Hi Isaac, hi Sarah. I have finally caught up with all the chronology. Thank you so much for amazing content. <clears throat> Can I ask your opinion on the Vada's World series? You have never mentioned it. I'm not sure I can even think of it. I know that the, uh, I think the author's name is Elizabeth. I'm sorry, Vata's War series. Yeah. Does that help? It, well, it's very familiar, but I can't see to pull it up right now. I will come back to that later. <laughs> Next question. Fate's End. Hi, Isaac. If faster than light isn't a thing, then could the time it takes light to travel be a solution to the Fermi paradox? Could it be no light or signal could have gotten to us yet since their development? Through the power of Google, I was right. It was somebody whose name started with Elizabeth. It's Elizabeth Moon series, and I, I, I've only read the first book or two. I liked it, but I never really followed it up that much. Um, what was the actual question right there? Would you like me to repeat yes, the question pri prior to this or this one? I'm not going to switch the camera out of here because you're glaring at me. <laughs> <laughs> you said you weren't going to switch the camera, so I glared at you. <laughs> so you want me to repeat the face end question? Please repeat the second question, yeah. Hi, Isaac. If faster than light isn't a thing, then could the time it takes light to travel be a solution to the Fermi paradox? Could it be no light or signal could have gotten to us yet since their development? No, and I think this is this is the big issue on that one. It's, as fast as light is, it's slow compared to the vast timelines of the universe and the galaxy. However, as as slow as time is at that scale, it's still really fast compared to the timelines of plants or stars living. The reality is that it's only been, a, you know, light that leads from one side of the galaxy to the other only needs 100,000 years to get here. And if you're thinking about, you know, civilizations lasting for millions of years or evolving over millions of years, in that kind of construct, then there's no real reason why you wouldn't have already have signals coming in from other galaxies, let alone our own. That's one of the things we've looked at more in the, well, throughout the Fourier Paradox series, so we'll go over those points in a lot more detail. Just a bill O2. Now that we're heading back to the moon, what do you think of building an electromagnetic railgun launch system to on the moon to build or launch vehicles built on the moon mostly from lunar material? I love it. Uh, now, probably not mostly from lunar materials to actually build the, the thing. That would be nice, but there I, I, I think that that one I'm a little bit more pessimistic and we are doing early on. Maybe in terms of just like bulk mass, like you know, where you can you know, pylon material. But uh, we have a nice model we use in some of the episodes that Ian Light, uh, Ian, Ian Long did. Um, he's from deduction from light that I love using on that. It's just kind of a zoom through a moon base that launches it off there. But um, I love the idea of a lunar railgun. That's just the best place to put one for you know, helping build up the uh, the area around Earth and even a lot of the colonies that we want to put up there. This changes the game a lot, so very much in favor of it, but that's definitely to me more like a, uh, you know, that's not the thing you do day one of, of colonizing moon. That's probably 20 years down the road. Sanabello, could it be possible to send matter or energy through a wormhole without sending information? Yeah, uh, and this is something that kind of gets, well, Imagine for the moment uh, the Big Bang was a wormhole and matter was just flowing out from some of the universe. This is not how that works, but that's kind of your idea of kind of white hole. You would have a very similar effect to a Big Bang and you just have hot material coming out, super hot material that had no data to it. Or super cold, I suppose, too. It doesn't make a difference, but the point is it's all scrambled. It's random static, right? If you had something like that coming out and you looked at it and said, wow, there's a pattern here, that would be problematic because it would imply you could violate causality. But potentially, if you had a wormhole that allowed you to move things inside this universe, as between two universes, but it could, but it scrambled it, that doesn't violate causality then, because you are going to be pushing information from one place to another, but the information is not making the journey beyond the trivial fact that they were, the wormhole exists, right? It's like with quantum entanglement and spooky action distance. You're not actually finding out anything. You can't send information that way. And a wormhole like that would still be useful because you could use it as a really good spaceship drive. You know, imagine if you had a wormhole that you could just chuck matter out the back that was coming out of superheated hydrogen or something like that um, as it reformed from constituent particles. 
a uh, very good engine, very good power plant, but that wouldn't have any value for space travel in that context except for the fact that it would let you push ships with very free energy and rocketry as opposed to faster than light. I think, was that the signal we're going to break? I think we're going to break. All right, so we'll get to more of your questions in a few minutes, and we'll see you soon. So we'll be on break for a few minutes to grab a drink and a snack, and while we're waiting, you can get more questions in the chat for our moderators. If we don't get to your question today, you can post it in the comments section of the live stream, and I usually get to most of those a day or so after, at least for a quick answer. Some need longer ones though, like this one from last month's comments section. NG Simple asked, Would you consider populations of autonomous self-replicating machines to be a form of life? Also, could said machines evolve? This is something we've talked about in episodes like Low-Tech Car Chef Civilizations and our Void Ecology and Space Whales episode, and so did Gregory Benford in his Galactic Center Saga series, but this is the basic notion. A self-replicating machine is presumably one designed with some task beyond just basic survival. That's the task or tasks we want it to perform. Once it is in the self-replication game it can potentially begin mutating though. This is not an absolute. As we looked at before, there are data integrity methods and algorithms like checksum that you can build into machine schematics and reproduction and it's not too much extra effort to make a mutated reproduction of that data, the machine's DNA, less likely not to occur even for something reproducing to fill whole galaxies and over the lifetimes of stars. Still if that's not there, if mutation can occur in that machine equivalent to DNA, which I tend to just call MNA for lack of something better, then a new dynamic occurs. The machine has a creator-made purpose and now has the identical evolutionary ones of survival of self and species that we do. By default, that purpose is not contributing to making it more likely to live long and prosper, so to speak, so mutations that change or diminish that purpose aren't interfering with survivability, while any that make it more about self-survival and reproduction will promulgate more just like with life on Earth. You now effectively have an amoeba that divides or reproduces and mutates, just made out of silicon or whatever, and that should lead to diversity including sibling cannibalism or cousin cannibalism, resulting in predator-prey cycles and so on, like big sturdy slow or immobile solar collectors that stored energy and got robbed of it by some equivalent of herbivores, in other words a whole new ecosystem, which might look very interesting on a grey-gooed planet where you might have solar-powered upper layers and lower dead layers surviving on marine snow equivalents as material descended toward the bottom and an eventual layer of magma. You might have the reverse as a natural Dyson swarm around a star, with bits drifting out from an inosphere of light collectors acting as marine snow. Now where we draw the line to call this life is tricky and same for evolution, the two are not automatically synonymous. Again, we might program a self-replicator to be non-mutating, that is already within our technological skill set, though it would generally make them slower to replicate. I'm not sure how much mutation something needs to qualify as alive, and it is pretty likely humans will apply this themselves in the future, some possibly opting only for chosen mutations and having nanobots run through them killing off or correcting mutated DNA off the template they were born with, or paid a lot of money for, or both. Also, a machine might not be self-replicating but only able to produce a step below itself. Big machine makes hundreds of smaller machines which are factories for smaller machines in turn. Or in a reproduction circle, your bigger factory bots are unable to replicate themselves but two or three unrelated factory bots that produce different chains could team up to make another of those bots, as something triggered by a complex supply chain that was running low due to insufficient factory bots of this type. This is still an ecosystem and has some parallels to our own, but is quite alien and indeed more alien than actual aliens who naturally evolved might be. One other quick caveat, a machine's additional purpose, the thing we want it to do and give it self-replication in order to do it better, might be survival related too, like mining some necessary ore or collecting power, or being part of a reproductive circle and in such cases those purposes would tend to erode slower from mutation as they are survival related, and a good engineer might aim to make the robot's tasks survival related in that way as an extra safety measure. Anyway, great question, so let's get back to some more of your questions.
And we're back. So, next question. <laughs> well, welcome back, Ed. The first question in this part is going to be from Indigo. Mm -hmm. Hi to Isaac and the SFIA team. Do you happen to know whether dark matter models predict if dark matter is predicted to accumulate in planetary, stellar, or galactic cores? Thanks. Um, not very much. Uh, we only say no, not at all, but uh, there might be some, because it, it depends on which model of dark matter you're looking at. If there is one that allows dark matter to interact with the universe around it or with each other, you would still get a certain amount of limited friction if it's just a little bit. If they don't interact at all, then, then there'll be none at all, right? That's essentially how that works out. But you really don't get much clustering as a result, except at the galactic scale, because these things still have a speed, and that's why we say they're core dark matter, because they're not moving fast enough to escape entire galaxies, gravitational pull, so they clump up around a galaxy a bit. So we have a super chat from Name Not Provided. Around what year, approximately, do you think we will achieve a post-scarcity civilization, if ever, or do you think humanity will destroy itself first? Do they, they actually not have a name, or was it just a, that it was the actual user name idea. not provided. That's the actual user <laughs> idea. <laughs> Thank you. Thank name you not so provided. <laughs> Thank you. Name not provided. <laughs> um, I would guess that, well... Where you want to say something is post-scarcity is so debatable. For me, it has that, you know, when when do the vast majority of people basically get to, I would say, if most people could live an upper-middle-class lifestyle as it is right now in the United States, generally speaking, what we were saying, type prosperity options, etc., and that was sustainable, where most people on the planet, of 8 billion people, could do that and do that sustainably, in the sense of we didn't have to worry about running out of, you know, coal next year or something like that, or a century or two from now, whatever it is, um, that would be to me a, a post, that would be post-scarcity. Um, because at that point in time, you have that level of abundance for pretty much everything that's a basic need for life. Um, we're not there yet as a result. So now you could make an argument that we've actually been post-scarcity for um, you know, decades now, especially in the first world. But it kind of comes down to where you draw the line, how many exceptions count, you know, how many people starving to death does a uh, you know, do you have to have in a civilization where you don't really count as post-scarcity anymore? And uh, I would say that it'd be very hard, to, in my mind, to say that we've been post-scarcity outside of the Force World uh, anywhere, and even inside the Force World, just because it's not not something we could really keep doing indefinitely currently. Asun... Uh, 20 years, maybe. Why not? <laughs> Asun Dead uh, says, if you were to take one thing from physics and incorporate it into a TG... TTRPG, what would it be? TTRGB? TTRPG. Oh, tabletop RPG, okay. I'm just thinking those are RPGs still. <laughs> I was actually playing one yesterday up in Buffalo. That's what we were up to. So we were doing Pathfinder 2nd Edition uh, with little bits of elements poured in from the uh, White Wolf system exalted. Very fun. Um, if I could take any science fiction incorporated into a tabletop? Physics. Physics. I mean, that's um, what you do all the time, but let's see. Well, well, I, I would say probably, I tend to like fancy settings, not sci-fi anyway, just because they tend to get on my nose. I, the one that would be, is, for me, is always scale, right? People don't really think about things like conservation of energy, and there was the other one, that people remember concepts like conservation of energy and scale. You know, that, that, uh, that's the big ones that I bring into almost any tabletop game. Daniel Kravowski, thank you for your super chat. Isaac, from which source do you take ideas for your videos, and where do you work in real life? At this desk, really. Um, you know, we were coming up on the 8th anniversary of the first episode of the show, and um, for the first couple of years, it was a complete hobby that I was in, you know, out of pocket on, so I think I spent thousands of dollars running the channel for no good reason, and I finally got talked into taking on, like, a, pa a Patreon account. And then, you know, it's a couple of sponsors, Audible, and uh, was our first one, and Brilliant. And I'm very grateful for them talking me into that. Um, and, you know, we do some ads, too, because YouTube kind of forces you to, uh, to be honest. <laughs> but but um, I would say that probably around year three, it, it kind of stopped being a hobby, or even a hobby that was sucking up all my time but wasn't my job, and became my actual job job. Now, outside of that, I also work at the Board of Elections. Well, I actually don't work at the Board of Elections. I'm the chairman of the Board of Elections, and I go in there about once a week to check on things, because like, um, it's it's not the same as, like, we have a director and deputy director that we appoint, 
it's like a school board, so it's kind of like a school board position in that context. We oversee it and make sure that all of the policy is in place to make sure that works well. I also make their training videos for it because I, I, you know, I, I have the software equipment and time for it, so we make the best training videos in the state, which means the best in the country because nobody runs elections like Ohio does, and I mean that too. We really do run it better than anybody else. Say otherwise, but you'll be wrong. <laughs> so, um, and so, um, you know, that's the other main thing that I do in life besides this is elections. So I enjoy it. It's a hobby in some ways too now. <laughs> and our farm and our exciting right, yes, additional right. little. Uh, I also own a farm, which I'm also sitting on. I'm in my house right now, by the way. This is where I walk at. So um, there was a farm out behind the window here. There's a tractor right over there. And uh, yes, right over there. So and, um, we keep bees, we farm, we have a rental uh, that we turn my old house into. So and a garden. A lot of yeah, a garden. We have a lot of projects going on. We stay busy. Stay, and that's a good thing to do, by the way. Stay, stay busy. It keeps you active. It always <laughs> gives you something new to be learning. <laughs> All right. Are you <clears throat> done hypothesizing on that question? Uh, pontificating. Pontificating. Yes, I well, am. I. I thought you were coming up with additional theories there as you were going on and on. <laughs> okay, so. I'm going for a bike ride after this. I feel like I'm going for a bike ride after this. You want to go biking? Here or in virtual reality? Not in virtual reality. I'm a press guy. The next question, please. <laughs> the next question is a super chat from Nick Kirkodalius. Thank you. Are energy or force shields theoretically possible? We have an episode called Force Fields that looks at that issue in more detail. Uh, and the answer is kind of, sort of, yes, mostly no. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> Christian Corello, again, thank you for your super chat. Can rings of tethered orbital habitats around a star be positioned at different angles, one at 180 degrees, one at 90 degrees, etc., so on and so forth? Uh, I was an orbital ring around Earth, or? Around a star. Around a star, okay. There, I think that there you'd be looking at more the, the kind of, the, well, to tie that back to the other question I answered very, very quickly, uh, one of your ways you can actually put it to a shield together that we look at in that episode is we say, well, why not actually just use an actual shield, like the old medieval style ones? you got a spaceship, why doesn't it have a gigantic inflatable or expandable metal shield to block stuff with? You can do something similar around um, a planet as a defensive mechanism. You put a bunch of, but you can't do a big hollow sphere very well not one that's got a lot of mass and want to fall down. So what you instead do would have a lot of spinning rings. And these spinning rings aren't habitats in this case, not ring wars, but they're a protective shield. So they don't have to spin, you know, at one G to produce the counter gravity so you can live on the inside. They're just a spinning ring so it doesn't fall down. They're just an orbiting ring. And a big thick orbiting ring. And there's one that's maybe a couple kilometers wider, placed right beyond it, tilted at an angle, and another another angle, etc. until you have a big sphere around the planet of these rings that's a protective shield against whatever you feel like they need to be. And you could have these sets so they'd be a little expandable, right? Instead of being a flat plate that looks like that most time, it's scrunched up and this pops up when you need to activate it. So you have a very tiny little sequence of beads around the planet, big long bead bracelets around it that can suddenly expand and turn into a gigantic shield, a hold shield that blocks, say, a supernova um, or, you know, orbital bombardment. That's kind of an option there. The other one, of course, is that what you're suggesting is how you do a Dyson shell, a di you know, classic Dyson sphere of the non-classic variety, where you just put a bunch of ring wards around it, cocked at various angles. And uh, we had that graphic we occasionally put up on the channel for Dyson spheres that shows one like that. Yes, that's possible. It's still a Niven-style ring ward, though. So if you want the total gravity on it, you need a super material like he has in that serious script that you had to stabilize it to. Malachi Oder Kais, thank you for your super chat. Thanks for your consistent work and effort. What's your opinion on why we have research into electric propulsion, but we ignore the high power versions? Mm. You know, that's one of those ones where if you, if you ask uh, five different rocket engineers, you should get 25 different answers <laughs> each. Um, <laughs> you know, I like Vasimir, for instance, a concept, but it has a lot of a lot of work that needs to be done to really bring it to the, even the prototyping stage. Really, um, the biggest problem we have in all these things is how do we manage to make the most energy go from, you know, a battery or a solar panel or a fusion reactor, whatever it is, into a particle shooting out the back of a ship, while we do that very many of them at once, so we actually get some real thrust, 
and without melting the thing apart. And that turns out to have a lot of engineering problems. Um, and I think that that's mostly what it is right now is that nobody thinks they can really overcome all those engineering problems to produce a really good prototype when the market really wants something that is either going to be good for moving you back and forth to Mars in a few months or which could be used to very cheaply allow station keeping on a satellite. So, low power portions. Roberto says, are there any alternatives to the Kardashev scale, and is there another way to quantify how advanced a civilization is? I missed that first sentence. Are there any alternatives to the Kardashev scale? Yeah, I think we were talking about that first episode not long ago. I introduced one in there, actually, the very first episode of the show, and I never brought it up again. <laughs> Nobody ever really seemed to use it. It was a perfectly good one for kind of like putting things together, but it was more the idea that you'd have a population scale, a technology scale, and a size scale for a given object. <laughs> it was meant for measuring megastructures, so there was the various types of generalized categories, and then there would be a component for its, um, <clears throat> its size, a component for its actual population, a component for its technology level. So you could describe it as a, um, you know, a uh, rotating swing size 50, population 20, uh, technology level 52. You know? Um, which I think I ripped right out of travel or the RPG for the technology levels. But um, with the car shows concerned, I don't think that we really could ever put together a better system. That's why it sticks. It's, it's, there. it's already out there. It's not good. It's just there. Because we don't actually have any examples to look at. How do I write up a decent taxonomy of, of civilizations, of high-tech civilizations, when I have technically one example, maybe, kind of, not any. We don't have any advanced civilizations, because we don't mean all We haven't mean all obviously. Um, so how you how do you create a, a categorization of that? And we do this with the things like planets or other things, and we end up having people get upset later on. We have to rename everything. Oh, yellow dwarf star, that we never call it dwarf anymore, because it's not dwarf, but we thought it was originally. Pluto, which has to get demoted as a planet to dwarf planet, because we don't want to have another 30 or 40 of them in the solar system we have to memorize, that kind of thing. So I would say we won't have a good categorization system for advanced civilizations till we have a lot of them. April Van Ryan, thank you for your super chat. She says, I love you, Isaac and Sarah. These are my favorite shows. Thank you. <laughs> Val, also a super chat, says, should we first prioritize on establishing a base on the moon rather than racing to go to Mars? And is the moon potentially artificial? Great content, as always. <laughs> well, those are two very different questions there. Um, you know, our Moon Force versus Mars Force episode, um, we, we, I, we came to the various reasons why you might do A, Y, or B, uh, as well as, like, could you do an asteroid or Venus as our first base? And we're looking at the first settlement episode this week, too. Um, and you can make a good case for all of them, but I feel like they're the strong one outside of an orbital colony around Earth is, is almost always going to be um, the moon. And um, as to whether or not the moon itself is artificial, uh, yeah, you know, until you actually dig around on these things, I can't, like, it's like, I can't just say, no, it's not, because that's, yes. We have no evidence that it's artificial, you know, in that kind of context. Uh, if you've seen the movie Moonfall, obviously, that was horrible, by the way. I did not like that movie. But, <laughs> you know, it's, a, it's got the hollow moon thing going on. That's always possible. You never know if you're going to dig down there and find a big black monolith Arthur C. Clark style either. But we just don't have any evidence to indicate that. So, Thought Criminal says, Isaac, are you personally signed up for cryonics? Mm. I am not. It's like me freezing my brain. It's in my will. Okay, well, <laughs> he's, he, this is, he has additional <laughs> questions, husband. <laughs> <laughs> if so, are you signed up at Alcor, the Cryonics Institute, or somewhere else? And if not, why not? So I have it in my will to to look at the option of freezing my brain. But uh, the thing is, if you die, well, obviously I'm not going to endorse any of those particular organizations at this time. Right? You you go pick and do your own research. I get your brain frozen and with who? Uh, for me, right now, it's not the best option for to have funds available because. Most things that would kill me right now would do it in a way that would destroy my brain in the process, or which they wouldn't have time to get up here and do it and fall from any real medical aid of that variety. Most of my death scenarios would not make it very easy for me frozen currently. Uh, but I do think it's a pretty good approach to uh, backup, as it were. So, cheaper than life insurance. Also. 
That's, That's true. for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Especially if you're going to fly. But uh, of course, life insurance is about really insuring your life. It's more about insuring your death. That's an interesting question. Is life insurance going to be available for people that go to outer space for regular trips? Probably at a very high premium initially, yeah. <laughs> I, I would wonder, actually, that's a really good question, is, is what are the insurance premiums right now for an astronaut? Is that the or are they going to say uh, that it's limited to within the Earth's hemisphere? Or <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> so, atmosphere? Um, I mean, they could really, really limit it. Yeah, no, because you gave a lawyer a crazy time trying to figure out how to write that out, too, <laughs> for the freeze of my brain. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> As long as you stay alive, that isn't the problem. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Albert Jagginson, what megastructures built specifically for scientific experiments would be useful and or practical to build, such as particulate accelerators in space, mm -hmm. if any? What, what was the first chunk of that? Megastructures built specifically for scientific experiments. Um, useful and practical yeah. to build. Super collider is the big one. You always want to do one of those, because if you look at those high energy particles, um, <laughs> you can do one that size. Gives you the power plant for it too. Um, hmm. For me, most of what's interesting in, in low gravity and microgravity is either building of gigantically huge space detectors, like uh, you know a telescope that's uh, a thousand miles across. You could theoretically do something of like that in space, or it's uh, chemistry and metallurgy. You know, what kind of stuff can you make in microgravity? What changes in terms of how crystals uh, you know form in that kind of context? in that really low gravity versus here in a gravitational environment. Was that the end? That, that was the end of it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I was thinking that we are uh, getting, a long week. <laughs> getting close to needing to roll through the uh, uh, lightning round here. Are you up to a lightning I'm, round I'm today? I'm up to a lightning round, yes. Okay. Probably not, but let's do it anyway. <laughs> so 15 second answers? Well, I... That never actually happens. But yes, we'll do it as quick as we can. Okay. Miami's last capitalist. Thank you for the super chat. Since you make a moon episode every year, 2023 should be your rewriting of Moonfall. No, I don't think I'd really want to do that one because I, I'm not sure how you would re... It, it, I'm not going to beat up on that movie too much because it is it is a Roland Emmerich film. It, it, that's what you expect. You know. Time's up. Okay. <laughs> Next question. Victor Runyon. Question, how do you see us dealing the loss of species that we need to survive, such as bees? Um, you know, the best thing to do, and this is, this is something I occasionally get in a little bit of trouble with some other folks on, is I like the idea of getting DNA samples of everything and their digital DNA too. You get the frozen version and then you digitize that so you can reproduce it and print it if you had to down the road. Some folks will say, well, doing that gives people encouragement to go ahead and let those species die off. I say that's probably true in a few cases, but... I, it's kind of be like, well, don't don't put seatbelts in cars because that will encourage people to drive recklessly. So I, I feel like the best thing for us to do would be to get DNA samples of all the animals and then try to keep them from going extinct anyway. I need a little bell because then I can <laughs> ring it when you're at the end of your 15 second question. You know the canon that someone was doing that when they were flicking the little yes. green beam? In the <laughs> I'm going to try that next yeah. time. <laughs> Demis Recon B4, thank you for your super chat. He says, thank you for all of your great content. Thank you. Bill Wanchalo, also a super chat. Thank you for all you do. Oh, thank you too. These are easy questions. <laughs> <laughs> Ahsoka Ventris, I really appreciate how positive you always seem about humanity's future. I Wait. wish I was the same. How do you see us getting through the upcoming climate chaos, energy issues, and population? What was that name again? Ahoshka Ventris. Ahsoka Ventris or? Yes. It's, it's like a Star Wars, Clone Wars mixed with like two different name sets there. Ventress and Ahsoka. Look, <laughs> continue on. What was the question again? <laughs> I really appreciate <laughs> how positive you always seem about humanity's future. Thank how, you. <laughs> how do you see us getting through the upcoming climate chaos, energy issues, and population? Um, I mean, I, I actually tend to think that uh, population itself is actually one of the things that's going to help us on this. If you grow too fast and you grow dystopianly beyond what your means can support at all, that's not good. That's going to screw you up. But for the most part, the more people we can throw at these problems, the better, right? And that usually requires a pretty good and educated population and lots of resources. For climate in general, you know, obviously that's all about finding that new power system. I tend to be, to me, that's 
find a better source of power. I also like solo meals and shades for helping cool planets too. Bill Wanchalo. Hello, That's not Isaac. That's a good question. I can't do that. In like How do you see standardized time working in the future? Mm, uh, um, I believe that the best thing we do for that is not to have decimal time. I, I do not like metric time. <laughs> so, Would we uh, use Earth's year as our calendar or maybe simplify into something close but without stuff like leap days? I think that we probably keep the exact same calendar we have now and then do it locally to whatever the actual habitat or planet was going for internally. I think that what you get is you have the official time stamp of UTC, and then on top of that, you have your time of day for describing it. Like, it's noon here, but that's 7 p.m., you know? Mr. Gaster, could a clone sue their original if they disliked their life? You can sue people for all sorts of reasons. I don't think the, I don't think the clone would be able to do that, because you can, they're effectively going to be your parent from a legal perspective. Trying to sue your parents while it's been done doesn't, it makes the TV news for a joke, but people are very unsuccessful suing their parents. Andre Jones, thank you for your super chat. Another Fermi Paradox question. Do you think the James Webb Telescope will ever detect type 2 or type 3 civilization immensity of the universe? Um, I mean, it, if, if they're there, it could. It could, it could see K3s. Um, but uh, I don't think that, I'm not really expecting that, to be honest. Uh, would it spot a K2? A little less so. Dyson, swarm, Dyson swarms themselves are a little harder to notice unless you actually are looking at a specific star and know there's a star there. So, Christian Carello, thank you for your super chat. Think you'll ever do a sci-fi video speculating on aliens made of energy. The best example from sci-fis that I can think of are the Dredge from Titan AE. Mm. I didn't like that movie. <laughs> that was from the yeah. hit, that's what he said. The animated one. It was actually not that bad, but... Uh, um, all energy beings, like the Q or a lot of the other ones, eh, probably. I'd, I, the thing is, it's, it's a very bad reason for naming uh, episodes, but I always like any alien episodes to have the, uh, you know, aloof aliens or stupid aliens or description aliens. And uh, well, I will break that format occasionally. I, that's usually how you get to sell me on an episode like that is there's so many good topics to do. Can you give me a title that fits the, fits the mold? <laughs> I think we may have answered this one before, but we had a, a suggestion from Stephen Mark Skavavsky last time. Um, make an episode about secret technology and how um, would future space governments keep technology from the public. Ooh, I like that one. If I can get a good title for that. <laughs> says secret <laughs> technology. I'm sure a lot of you know we've been changing around the thumbnails on that a lot. Um, we, we can't squeeze too much text onto an actual title card. And then it blocks Jacob's wall, plus it becomes very hard to see anyway. And I love his art, so I don't like to block it. We've been experimenting with new ways of doing that, but you're still limiting a title to like five to seven words top. So if you can think of a good way to describe something that's short like that, there's a much better chance of getting me doing an episode on it. I know it's a stupid basis for it, but I'm not the reason the algorithm clicks on those. Everybody else is, so it's not my fault. <laughs> Marlis1000 says, Do you find it offensive that I really like your accent, even though it is actually caused by an impairment? For some reason, I find it so relaxing. A lot of people do. It's weird. I know I have a lot of people who I listen to to go to sleep to or relax to, so it doesn't bother me. Apparently, I do have an accent, though. It's just that we didn't really notice it underneath the speech impediment until we ground some of the worst bits of it off. And and then I asked them, well, what, what, what one is it? And they said, well... We discussed this as a group of speech pathologists. It's like, it's Mid-Atlantic. I said, Mid-Atlantic? Isn't that that fake accent people have who are trying to pretend to be British? I said, well, no, it's people who travel back and forth between like New England and England a lot. It's a real-ish accent. So what's a real-ish accent? And they said, well, that's what you have. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you have a couple... It says, your channel is a gift for optimists in a world dominated by pessimism, anti-technological attitudes, and anti-intellectualism from both sides of the political spectrum. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. And I think with that, we will wrap up for today. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for joining us. I'm, if we didn't have a chance to get your question today, please go ahead and put it down into the uh, comment section. I will try to get to some of them in the next day or so. And another one, um, if you did not know, we have these discussion boards over at Reddit, uh, which I knew uh, more from, uh, and Facebook and Discord. And please feel free to go over there and join those forums to find other people who actually enjoy talking about these topics. And if you want, you can volunteer to help moderate them or actual chat here for today. Not today, we're done today. So unless you're a time machine, you can't help us moderate today. But you can help us moderate next month, which we do mostly out of Discord. And on that wonderfully cheerful note, 
<sighs> I need more coffee. We'll see you guys on Thursday. <laughs> so that will wrap us up for the day. I want to thank everyone for joining us, and again if we didn't get to your question, feel free to post it as a comment below and I'll try to get to it this evening. Also you can continue the conversation at any of the forums on Facebook, Reddit, Discord, or our website IsaacArthur.net. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you Thursday.